0: You belong to the land and the land belongs to you. There is no distinction. It's like a hand in a glove. Everything fits in and your culture is part of that as well. And everything you know that's around you, every part of life that's around you is all interlinked and interdependent. It's all about ancestry as well and knowing where you've come from and that you are a continuation of all that. And we all are a continuation of life, are we not? I mean, everybody on the planet, nobody can say that they exist in a vacuum at all.
1: This is Landed from Farmerama. Part 2. Restoring the Landscape. My name's Col. I'm a farmer's son from the Scottish Highlands. Last year, I moved back to our family farm to help steer it in more agroecological directions. Farming is in a period of rapid change at the moment. As I see it, our current trajectory is towards ever greater separation between humans and nature, with industrial megafarms on one hand and supposedly unproductive, peopleless wilderness on the other. Over the past year, I've found myself questioning whether our current relationship to the land is inevitable or whether there are alternatives. It's been a lifelong dream to return to my family's farm and to be part of building a fair and just agroecological future, nourishing both the earth and the local community. I always thought the small family farm model was how we'd get there, but I've come to realise that this model has challenges that are hard to solve and rarely talked about. Succession for one. Who will take over when the farmer retires? A love of farming isn't always genetic, and land values mean that most people with an interest in farming are priced out and unable to find secure access to land. Then, even when everything does fall into place and you're running a thriving business, for the most part, the great food that agroecological farms produce is limited to an elite few who can access it. All of these tensions paint a picture that is far from just. And then, Last summer, I came across a statement which shook a lot of my long-held beliefs to their core. The small family farm is a colonial concept. To me, this was one of the most jarring and counterintuitive things I'd read in years. After all, the small family farm was a model that I'd always just assumed was the ideal, both historically and when imagining into the future. But there was something about this statement that cut through me, ringing true in a way that both scared me and excited me. What if this is the case? What does this mean if this is the case? And possibly most exciting, if not the small family farm, then what? Although this sentence has since taken me completely outside of my comfort zone, I feel that there is a possibility that it could be the key to many of the tensions I'm grappling with in trying to realise my vision for the future. (laughs) The small family farm is a colonial concept. Okay, let's have a think about what this might mean. When we describe something as colonial, what are we actually talking about? I've found a few different definitions. Colonialism is a practice of domination which involves the subjugation of one people to another. Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy.
2: Colonialism is the practice by which a powerful country directly controls less powerful countries and uses their resources to increase its own power and wealth. Collins Dictionary
3: Control by one power over a dependent area or people. Merriam-Webster
1: So what does that mean here, on this farm here in the Highlands? In what way might the small family farm be a colonial concept? If it is, what came before the family farm? And how was that shift to our current model part of a colonial project? Throughout this series, I've decided to focus my attention on one area, Scotland's Highlands and Islands. I made this choice for no other reason than this is where I am and that this is the place that I call home. By digging where I stand, I'm hoping to understand how the land and the way we relate to it has been shaped by colonialism. But although my location here is specific, echoes of what's happened here in the Highlands and Islands can be found all across the globe. To my surprise, what I've learnt is that just under 300 years ago, the family farm as we know it, in fact privately owned farms in general, didn't exist in the Highlands. It turns out there used to be a completely different understanding of land relations here, one where land was held in commons and where people saw the landscape as something they were part of, not as an asset to be parceled up and owned individually.
0: Well, I'm very happy to talk about that because it brings back very, very happy memories. I realise now in my old age what an idyllic and amazing thing it was, and how lucky I was to be one of the very last people. I'm probably the youngest person still alive who actually went out there.
1: This is Alice Starmore a crofter and world-renowned knitwear designer from the Isle of Lewis, an island at the top of the Western Isles which needs a three-hour ferry ride to get to from the coast of mainland Scotland. It's an island that to most people might appear inhospitable and barren, comprising mostly of sharp cliffs and 59,000 hectares of blanket bog. Throughout Alice's childhood in the 50s and 60s, every summer her community would herd all of their livestock out of the townships where they lived, and out onto the moorland bog. Here they would spend the long summer months in the Sheelings, or aries, as they're known in Gaelic, the language once widely spoken in this region.
0: So they had to walk for about 10 miles, sometimes a bit more than that, maybe 12 miles out into the moor, going through the town with the cattle and your pots and pans, with the immerich, as it was called, all the belongings that you took out to the arie, to stay there for about six to eight weeks in the summer time. By the time I was doing that, there were obviously vehicles around, and so things went out in trucks, but the cattle didn't. We didn't have cattle trailers, and the cattle actually were walked out. Mm. But once you actually set foot off the main road and onto the moor, you took your shoes off, of course, and just that first footstep was something that I, I, I always remember that as being something incredibly special because you never put your shoes back on again until you went home six weeks later. And that footstep, that, that taking off of the shoes, represented to me just enormous freedom, a kind of throwing away of every care that anyone might have. As a child, you could see it in the faces of the adults, of my mother, where literally they just forgot about everything and you stayed in this in this place and you just everybody just was there was always something happening and there was always laughter. There was always great stories, great entertainment and just you know, absorbing such a lot about plants, about the creatures that lived out there from the tiniest ant and dragonfly to the eagles that flew above. So yeah, it was full of experiences that I treasure greatly. I learned a lot without knowing I was learning it.
1: Alice's memories of being out at the Sheelings illustrate how completely interwoven the relationship was between the people of this region
0: and their landscape. Of course, all good things come to an end and there was the time for going home. You could actually, again, see it, especially on the older folk. You know, it weighed heavily on them. Nobody wanted to be the first to go and nobody wanted to be the last to leave either. I remember there was one old lady who lived in the area next to us and she'd put all her chickens in the tea chest because you took your hens out as well if you had hens and she was waiting for the lorry to come and take herself and the cat. But there was one time where she was going to be the last to leave, and she was very upset about that. And uh, we said, oh, well, you know, it'll be fine. And, and she turned and she said in Gaelic to us, of course, It's difficult to translate that into English, but what she really meant was that the pasture would be lonely without us, that it would miss us, Yeah. In other words, that it was a bee, it had a soul. And it's true that it did, and the centre of that soul, in every gallery, I think, was the loch. They were always based around a loch. If not a loch, then quite a substantial body of water, a a stream or a, a, a burn of some kind, because you needed water, obviously, you needed to have water nearby. And uh, we had a beautiful loch. It was called Loch Braijack. That was the heart and soul of the place. You took your blankets out, and everybody washed the blankets in this in the summertime. Everybody fetched water from the loch, and the loch was somewhere on a good day where you ended up sitting around, and, and the kids, you know, we would splash around, catch little minnows, and sticklebacks, and play in the water, and uh, and the adults would be chatting by by the loch side. So yeah, that was the heart and soul. And it truly, it truly had a soul. And I guess we all thought of it as having its own thoughts. And when I go back to it now, I, it's it, it, it kind of just sings. And when I travel the moors and visit all the other galleries, there's a feeling in every one of them of the powerful memories that people long past now, Will have had of those of those places, and to me it's still there 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 are those feelings still there in the land itself.
1: and islands were pretty much the last place to be assimilated into what we know today as modern Britain. Traditional ways of life and culture survived longer here than in just about any other part of the UK. And luckily for me, that means some of it, like Alice's experience of summers at the Aries, are still within living memory. And many other clues about how it all worked are also barely hidden, just below the surface. Up until the mid-18th century, society here was structured around what was called the clan system. Maybe you've seen Braveheart, or learnt about the clans at school. The clans were loosely connected kinship groups across the Highlands and Islands, who are most known today for liking their tartan, bagpipes, and having a good fight. As Scots, we tend to know quite a lot about how they died, but we seem to know less about how they lived. I've learnt that clans were not families in the modern sense, Whole villages known as townships were the organising unit of Gallic society, rather than the individual households of today. Although each township was quite distinct, they would work together not at a farm scale, but at a landscape scale, in the form of a clan's territory, and this territory could stretch for hundreds of miles. The way people worked the land was not based on land ownership, but instead was structured around communal working and common land. This is something I've discovered is common to many indigenous communities around the world. Also in common with many indigenous societies, the people here, the Gaels, had a relationship with the land and with the sea that was reciprocal and culturally rich. At the heart of the traditional way of life for the Gaels was the shielding system, which Alice described earlier. This is a form of what's called transhumance, which happens all across the world, a seasonal movement of people and their livestock. I asked Dr. Sam Harrison why this tradition emerged.
2: At his most basic, the shealing system was a way of just getting the cows out from the area in the Glen floor where they'd been through the winter and the spring and up onto the hills to, to graze that grass that was coming through. But it was a much more complex system than that. It was really finely balanced to the ecosystem because the fact that the cattle went up into the hills and the way that the cattle graze by just non-selectively eating everything and their, their big feet and the way that their dung is is an excellent way of creating manure. So that process of grazing cattle in the hills didn't just graze the hills, it improved the biodiversity within the hill. It made better swards of grass and forbs. It allowed insects to, to eat the manure effectively. And, and so the whole biosphere around that Shielding practice was improved. So, for me, even just that part, that ecological story of the shielding, is an excellent story about a well balanced relationship with a particular local ecosystem.
1: So, it seems that there's much to learn from the traditional ways of the shieldings that could be applied to agroecology. It might be tempting to focus on the farming practices and the environmental winds and then move on. But what I've learned from talking to Alice was that the shieldings were so much more than a functional necessity. I've learnt that the Gaels knew their territory intimately. They believed that they were part of that territory rather than something separate or above it. They gave names to every feature in it, and they had the knowledge and skills to make use of every part of it. They understood exactly how to navigate through it, how the landscape would change with the seasons, and what opportunities or dangers these changes brought with them. There are two important Gaelic words that perfectly capture this connection between a people, their landscape, and their culture, unfortunately, but perhaps unsurprisingly, they have no direct English translations. The first is "duches."
0: Well, "duches," it's quite complex. Essentially, the meaning of "duches" is a feeling of belonging, where everything is 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 linked, completely linked where you belong to the land and the land belongs to you. There is no distinction. It's it's like a hand in a glove. Everything fits in. And uh, your culture is, is part of that as well. And everything you know that's around you, every part of life that's around you, is all interlinked and interdependent. And uh, it's all about ancestry as well. And uh, knowing where you've come from and that you are a continuation of all that.
1: Dulchus goes hand in hand with another concept.
0: Dulchus. Dulchas is basically what you learn from your ancestors, what you learn from the people before you, and how you keep that practice going, as it were. Not in a deliberate kind of way, but it's an accumulation of all the knowledge that you've absorbed from your parents, from your from your culture. And the way that you use it, just give uh, a little indication of that one little small thing. I know how to dye using lichen dyes because I learned that from watching my grandmother and from all the older women around me when I was a very small child. And I still do that. I know more about the biology of of the lichen than my grandparents knew, but their knowledge was even more intense than mine. They knew exactly what time of the year to pick it. They knew what would happen with this one or if you went up that hill and got that one, why it would be better than the other. Although their knowledge wasn't what we would call strictly academic, it was very, very cultural and very precious and very important. And, uh, and so that is what Dulcas is.
1: These Gallic concepts are part of a rich tapestry of words and ideas which make up a distinct worldview, or cosmology, that is very different from that of modern industrial societies. Across the globe, and in other indigenous cultures, you'll find similar concepts expressing these kinds of interconnectedness and respect for the type of traditional knowledge that Alice talks about. But today, most of these cultures, their languages, and therefore these concepts, are under severe threat. As anthropologist Wade Davis puts it, a language, of course, is not merely a set of grammatical rules or a vocabulary. It is a flash of the human spirit, the vehicle by which the soul of a particular culture comes into the material world. Every language is an old-growth forest of the mind, a watershed of thought, an ecosystem of spiritual possibilities. These possibilities are fast disappearing. After hearing from Alice and beginning to understand how the Gaels and many other indigenous peoples around the world relate to the landscape as a whole, I'm starting to think that the idea of a family farm where the landscapes are divided up and portioned out is, well, it's bizarre. It's funny. In the world of regenerative agriculture and agroecology, I sometimes hear and have myself often used phrases like, the farm is an ecosystem. But finding out more about the ways that the world's indigenous peoples live within their whole landscape completely shatters this idea an ecosystem is an ecosystem you can't just cut out a little part of it the farm and treat that as a whole so how did we get here how did we get to a point where today the existence of the family farm feels so fundamental and unquestionable when not so long ago it was completely unknown to the people of this land In 1746, after many years of decline, the last embers of the clan system were violently extinguished at the Battle of Culloden, the last battle fought on the soils of mainland Britain. It's pretty amazing that the clan system, something that was essentially still tribal, had survived for so long within the British Isles. When the system came to an end, laws were immediately passed to try to assimilate the highlands into British society. Individual property rights began to be established, and with them came enclosures, bringing the land that had been held in common by each clan into private ownership. The clan chiefs, who had been the heads of their customary territory, suddenly became private landlords of that same landscape. The territories of the chiefs on the losing sides were forfeited and turned into vast private estates. The Gaels who lived within these territories were disarmed, their language and much of their culture violently suppressed. Even playing the bagpipes was banned. Then, not that long after that, a boom in wool prices and a newfound enthusiasm for improving land for agriculture led to a process of forcibly removing the indigenous Gales from their ancestral homes and territories. This was a period we know now as the Highland Clearances. The townships and glens were emptied of people In order to make way for sheep.
2: And then you really see the end of the Shealing era as enclosure happens.
1: Here's Sam Harrison again.
2: And one of the first pieces of land that were seized in sort of the process of clearance was the actual sheiling areas because they were kind of rough ground. They weren't used all year round, so they weren't sort of permanently used. So they were easier to take off and and fill with sheep. Um, So one of the first processes of clearance was actually the removal of townships associated sheilings. And then really the sheiling system collapsed as the ways of life you know, preclearance ways of life were then removed as everyone was sort of pushed onto crofts and away from these communal townships.
1: When these people were being dispossessed from their ancestral lands, they would often invoke their customary right of durus, which they believed was being violated. But of course, this Indigenous law was not recognised. Across the globe, other groups have been subjected to similar processes, where Indigenous populations are dispossessed of their lands and private property is established, where there was none before, where traditional customs, beliefs, land relations and laws are held in little to no regard, processes that are now broadly recognised as colonial. Dr Ian McKinnon is a researcher who studies the land-based cultural practices and traditional belief systems of the Gales. He's come to believe that these colonial patterns played out here as
4: well. There's been a history of marginalisation and the people who've been responsible for that territorial marginalization and forms of cultural denigration were explicitly describing that as acts of colonization. So James VI, when he ordered the plantation of Lewis by the Fife Adventurers, described it as the colonization of the island. You had at least one of the commissioners for the forfeited estate saying, we're going to establish a colony in the Highlands with this land that we've we've got. And then people like Sir John Sinclair, the first president of the Board of Agriculture, the forerunner of DEFRA today, saying what we're doing in, in the Highlands is part of a grand project of domestic colonisation you know, to make this a productive part of the mother country.
1: So the destruction of traditional Gaelic ways of life can, and I'm increasingly believing should, be understood as an act of colonisation. The colonisation of the Highlands and Islands, of the land, and in more general sense, of the people who lived here and their culture.
4: What there has been over the course of the last three or four hundred years, but particularly the last 150 years, is, for Gaelic Scotland, cultural devastation. There's very little left, or comparatively very little left, both in terms of social relations and cultural norms.
1: It's as a result of this process of colonisation that the family farm, as we know it, has come into being. This all hits very close to home for me. In researching this series, I found records indicating that the land my grandfather farmed, and which my family's farm, Inch and Down, used to be part of, was once home to 16 families. In May of 1845, these 16 families were cleared off the land.
3: 30 foot in diameter, 6 foot tall. It's a huge thing. And I was told when I was looking into it, variously from different people, that it was a memorial to the Clan McGilvery itself, that it was a Bronze Age clearance cairn.
1: Runitch Sandilands is a writer, Gaelic translator and cartographer living on the shores of Loch Ness in an area called Strathnairn. Nearby, there's a huge clearance cairn A pile of rubble formed from houses destroyed during the Highland Clearances. And yet today, in the area, few people are aware
3: of its true origins. The story was really that a new owner, an industrialist, a tycoon, um, had come and taken over the estate, the Glass Estate. It was kind of at a time when when the whole system was changing and and the Highland Sporting Estates were a fashionable asset to have. What happened was that within four to five years, of his arrival, seven townships, really a settled community of people had been disbanded, and their homes burned, and these stones piled up. It was kind of amazing to me how easily people could become disassociated from the history of their own place really and um it sort of begged the question of wh- why, why and um, what had happened on my doorstep, and why didn't the people who live here really kind of know what had happened. In researching these things, you can ask what processes are at play and what the missing narratives are. I'd come across a a quote from a French theorist that stayed with me and and seemed apposite here. It was that after a while, the coloniser doesn't have to be in the room since all the work of destroying the reflection in the mirror has been done.
1: This story is just one example of how the processes of colonisation here in the Highlands and Islands have caused us to forget. So much so that many people here today have come to see the disintegration of Gaelic culture and language as an inevitable part of modernity and progress, a view that again seems to be found in other indigenous cultures across the world, which have been marginalised by colonial
2: forces. I've encountered all sorts of people from Gaelic speaking families to teachers to people who've lived, you know, and their ancestors have lived here for centuries who have a very negative attitude towards Gaelic. And I think that's largely the kinds of processes that colonization and and the destruction, you know, the, the focused destruction of the Gaelic language for centuries has had the result of people really not thinking that it's worthwhile, you know, encouraging their children not to learn Gaelic. I found a recent study which looked at the last
1: Gaelic strongholds in the Highlands and Islands and found that only 4% of children entering primary school in these places could understand or speak Gaelic. This is one of the world's most institutionally supported minority languages, and yet it's still on the brink of disappearing. Around the world today, around 7,000 languages are spoken, but half of them, a full 50%, along with their respective cultures, are likely to disappear within the next few decades if things continue as they are. And what's really scary about this is it seems that cultural diversity, indigenous languages and biodiversity are all directly linked. While only 5% of the world's population are recognised as indigenous, these people protect 80% of global biodiversity. Wherever there are indigenous peoples, there appears to be a corresponding haven of biodiversity.
3: Having language to describe something allows for attention and care. It's an idea Robert McFarland's written about really nicely in his book, and he says, words are not just a means to describe, but also a way to know and to love it. If we lose the rich Lexus, then we risk impoverishing our relationship with nature and place. What we cannot describe, we cannot, in some senses, see.
1: The loss of these languages, and the interwoven cultural practices and traditional knowledge, including that of the Gaels, is concerning not just for sentimental reasons, but because it has a real impact on our ability to live in balance with the ecosystems that we're all part of. Turning back to the farm, my farm, the reason I started to ask these questions in the first place, I think about the things that have already been lost right here at Inch and Down. The Gaelic language is no longer spoken in this area. I don't speak Gaelic myself. What kinds of wildlife and biodiversity have been lost along with it? I probably won't ever know. In the past, traditional Gallic culture had a practice of giving names to every part of the landscape, even to areas the size of a spade. Look at the Gallic heartlands on an OS map and the density of names becomes very apparent. Among the dense orange contour lines, tufts representing boglands, and the winding blue channels of infinite watercourses, the maps show almost no houses, nor any other sign of human habitation. Indeed, go out to some of these vast, peopleless landscapes, and it would be very easy to picture this world as a wilderness. But the names of these crags, gullies, streams, and rocks tell a very different story. They tell of gatherings and parties, hidden dangers and places of respite, old heroes, tall tales and places full of life.
3: I really value and I love the, the technicolour of the view you can gain from having a, a knowledge of the Gaelic place names. There's a lot of poetry and colour there and they can speak of many things like human capacity. I find you can get an understanding of how people, how well people knew the landscape and an awareness of even conditions underfoot and in the sky, a diversity of wildlife, old beliefs sometimes. There's just there's so many things.
1: The language embedded within the landscapes is telling us that humans were here. We knew every nook and cranny. We belonged here. This place may be wild, but it's far from a wilderness. It's a landscape which fed, clothed, sheltered, and entertained us for centuries. After talking to Runich, Alice and others, I'm becoming increasingly nervous about the concept of rewilding and the momentum building around it. The intentions of the rewilding movement are laudable, and many of the objectives around restoring biodiversity and balancing ecosystems resonate with me. But separating the human from the wild, from nature,
0: now feels inherently problematic. The problem is that when a place is considered to be a wilderness, that we should keep away from it, whether the idea of it is to protect it or destroy it. If you keep away from it, then you have no connection with it at all. And you can't love what you don't know.
1: Rewilding could, and I'm beginning to believe should, be a process where people relearn how to be within a landscape. To know and to understand the places they find themselves in in ways which relate to what the indigenous peoples of that place may have done in the past. For Rinich, finding, reviving, sharing and reinventing traditional stories, the stories that are embedded in the landscape, is one way to start to mend people's relationship with their environment.
3: I'd say I think that our ability collectively or as individuals to enact any kind of political changes tied to our ability to make sense of the world around us to rediscover and reinvigorate the connections between people and places and language and culture, they can give you a sense of agency that you're a part of the story of that place. So a story that has been accruing over a long time. That sort of work is the the opposite of a sort of colonised mindset that is static or subdued, maybe passive, not questioning way of, well, it's not even a way of thinking, a way of not questioning. I think maybe telling stories, untold stories of people in places. You can consider some of the missing narratives sometimes, and the processes that are at play. And these stories, I think, can challenge ideas that are maybe dominant in the visual culture, especially when you're talking about the Geldach, places as wild and peopleless, and a peopleless landscape with you know majestic stags and castles and the sort of dream-like idea that a place like that belongs in the past, unto the past. So by taking ownership of some of these stories, um, you can say that there were, and there still are, real people in a real place here. I think that you could say that to get to know the stories of a place like that and the people is a sort of, a kind of resistance.
4: I think that those underpinning cosmological forces and that difference and that sense of understanding the world in a way that, you know, for instance, isn't individualistically led, isn't mechanistically led, but is seeing the world and its interconnections. And in terms of our relationships with, with human and with more than human nature in particular ways, but which have resonance with other indigenous cultures, for me, it's a key To making the transition to a more just and sustainable world in the future.
1: In trying to unpick the statement, the family farm is a colonial concept, and what this could mean for me here in the Highlands, I've had two major lightbulb moments so far. Firstly, the realisation that the family farm and private property as we know it didn't exist here just a few hundred years ago. Secondly. In trying to learn about what came before the family farm structure here, I've come to understand about just how interwoven Gaelic language, culture and relationships with the land were. And the more I looked into these two things, the more I came to understand how much they overlap. Even today. If you get that map of Scotland back out and mark on it the last remaining enclaves where Gaelic is still spoken as a living language, then mark onto it the areas of land that are collectively owned, both the few remaining historic commons or from the new wave of community buyouts that have been springing up across the Highlands and Islands in recent decades, you'll quickly see a correlation that is pretty hard to ignore.
4: Clearly, as you've said, it's a thing. It's a thing that community land ownership is on fire, is spreading, is established in those parts of Scotland where the Gaelic language is least weak. Still has some societal presence and in those areas, as I understand it, where the use and management of common grazings are still strongest. And I think that's true in large parts of the islands. We're
1: starting to see communities coming together to proactively push for collective land ownership and a revival of the commons, with community woodlands, housing and energy initiatives all taking off. While this is most apparent in those areas where Gaelic is still spoken. There are also signs that it's spreading elsewhere.
4: I think of what's happened in terms of the spread of the idea of property rights, of a certain kind of property rights, of private property rights, and the diminution of Gaelic concepts and ways of relating to land associated with Gael society is coming like a wave over Scotland and heading out, and the last area that it reached has been the Western Isles. And perhaps what we're seeing today or what we could potentially see today is that the tide is turning and that that wave is now rolling back in because while it's true that the majority of purchases and the majority of land is happening in the islands and in the Northwest Highlands, it's also true that increasingly it's happening elsewhere in Scotland, Perthshire, the borders, the cities. So the seeds that were sown in Stornoway, in Glendale, in Ascent, in Egg, in Noidart, those are now propagating elsewhere in Scotland. You know, they're being carried by the wind, they're being carried by the birds. We're seeing that good stuff beginning to happen elsewhere and people beginning to grapple with the responsibilities of taking care of their own places, their own surroundings, their own relationships in a new way. So we're starting to
1: see a revival of community land ownership in Scotland in response to some big modern-day challenges. Could there also be space for a revival of the old shielding system Alice told us about earlier on, in response to the big issues currently facing modern agriculture? When Sam Harrison founded the Shealing Project in 2015, his goal was to help people explore their relationships with the land, both now and into the future, by building connections with traditional Gaelic culture, shielding practices and ways of
2: life. I think the sheiling is a really important thing to understand today. I think it needs to be understood without too much romanticism or kind of um, simplicity. So it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, and although it was beautiful and wonderful, it was really hard work as anybody who's uh, looked after cattle or, or gone on, had long, long periods of time living in the hills will know we shouldn't look at it simplistically to say oh we should just return to a shielding system but i do think that it has a real bearing on how we think about using our landscape productively you know what particular types of livestock you know what breeds of livestock you know not just thinking about well cows are very well suited to the highland hills but what types of cows are suited to the highland hills so as we think about how we might utilize the agricultural landscape that we've got as well as improved biodiversity as well as be rewilding and repeopling places then the shielding is a great story because it's right here we have a history of it you know we don't need to reinvent the wheel we have some guidance about well okay so a seasonal cattle based grazing of the of the mountains actually improved the biodiversity and and you know people like Frank Fraser darling documented the kind of loss of biodiversity that happened when the shielding system Ended So, you know, we've got a really great example that we can adapt into a sort of modern sense to look at that balance between agriculture, biodiversity and productivity. And when we look at which animals we might use and what breeds we might use, you know, there's some great examples there in our history.
1: When I think about my agroecological vision for the future, what excites me about the work people like Sam are doing is that it demonstrates that this indigenous land management system is agroecology in action and at scale. This is both a food production system and a way of life where rewilding and repeopling can complement one another rediscovering the indigenous way of seeing the world here where i live has helped me to unpick my own long-held assumptions about our relationship with the land in scotland That have become normalized over the past couple centuries. In revisiting this area's history and exploring different narratives about how things have been, I feel I'm starting to decolonize my view of the landscape around me. If the family farm is a colonial concept, the seeds for something different, something that's not colonial, could already be here in the stories of our past.
3: I'd like to think that there's a a quiet, revolutionary kind of power to, to finding the fun and the beauty in the shared value of these stories within your own places. Places that you can call home and it's important to say, I think, maybe as well, um, home for whoever wants to call it home.
1: I couldn't agree more with what Runnich just said. Looking to the past does not have to mean closing ourselves off or shutting people out. Anyone can connect with a place through learning its stories, but it needs to be done in ways that are inclusive, outward-looking and relevant.
2: I think becoming placed or developing a sense of place or re-indigenising, I think is a really, really interesting and powerful concept at the moment. I think it carries quite a lot of historical baggage that we need to be quite careful about. We really need to rethink what it might mean to have a sense of place because by our very nature, we're extremely mobile people. And if we're going to define having a sense of place as attached to an ethnicity, then unfortunately, we're going down a route, effectively leads to racism and fascism. We need to be looking to a future where a sense of place is not about where you're from, who your ancestors were, but what you do living in the place that you live. And so it's about actions rather than about ethnicity. And so that whole debate, I think, is really important and really live and causes lots of people to get quite um, het up and excited, which is a good thing. But it's. I think it's a really, really important thing to be thinking about now in terms of what we're hoping a sustainable future might look like in the Highlands is groups of people who are really committed to living here. And they might be from all sorts of different places. And so we have to envisage a sense of place that is inclusive and dynamic and that doesn't repeat some of the kind of exclusions, this is my place, not your place, type of dynamics that have occurred.
4: And I think we are obliged for future generations to institute a profound transformation, another profound transformation, because it's already happened. We're living in the debris of our traditional society, we're living in the wreckage, and we need to reconstitute something from that wreckage that doesn't exclude or fence people out, but supports people to come in and be part of that reconstituting process. That's what I'd like to see happening. So
1: what have I learnt? I've learnt to look at the history of my home through the lens of colonialism. That here in the north of Scotland, the small family farm was part of a process that snuffed out a different way of living, farming and existing in the Highlands. But the concept of the family farm has become so entrenched and unquestioned that my whole life I'd believed the narrative that this is the way that things have always been done. How could I have been so convinced by a story that, just isn't that convincing. This dominance of the family farm in the landscape and in our collective imagination can only make sense because of the abrupt suppression of indigenous Gaelic practices, culture and language from the fall of the clan system and the Highland Clearances, and the following couple of centuries of gradual, often voluntary, decline and forgetting. It occurs to me that succession, one of the key vulnerabilities of family farms, isn't an issue within a clan. A collective, township-level ownership structure is so much more resilient and puts much less pressure on individuals or individual families. And at the same time, it opens up access to land for many more people within the local community. There just isn't any sense of isolation. Alice's memories of her summers at the Sheelings are filled with community. They're a far cry from the solitary existence of many farmers today. Of course, in many ways, it's great to be able to call the shots and do what you want to on your own land. But what I'm realising is that maybe the costs of individual ownership can be far, far greater than any benefits. It could be tempting to keep looking inward, to think that if we just turn back the clock to a pre-colonised Gaeltach, we'd return to an agroecological ideal that's perfectly attuned to the Highlands, and in doing so, right the wrongs of the past and discover a blueprint for our future. But, colonialism was, is, a global process. We can't possibly understand the full story if we only look inward. In the next episode, we'll look at the ripples of dispossession that followed the eviction of the Gaels from their native Highlands and Islands, as they went in search of a new home, and where the colonised became the colonisers. And I learn about how the profits from this new world had and continue to have a profound impact on the landscapes and family farms right here in the Highlands and Islands. Landed is produced by Col Gordon and Katie Revel, with executive producer Abby Rose. Our project manager is Olivia Oldham. Huge thanks to Josina Callist for her guidance and input and to Sarah Nicholas for all her help and support. Thanks also to Joe Barrett. The music for Landed is by Dagger Gordon and me, Cole Gordon. Funding for the project was provided by the funding platform Necessity. Farmerama is committed to keeping all our episodes free and to paying our team a living wage. To do so, we rely on the support of you, our community of listeners. If you'd like to help us make more podcasts, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash This episode features Alice Starmore, Sam Harrison, Ian McKinnon, and Runitch Sanderlands.